0: father we just sang about your great faithfulness your word tells us in hebrews chapter 12 that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses you tell us elsewhere in scripture lord and you know where even though i've forgotten that these things were written for our admonition and when we sing about your faithfulness and and We have these witnesses as we turn to Gideon or the rest of Gideon's account tonight. We see your faithfulness. We've seen your faithfulness throughout every book we've looked at so far. We're going to continue to see your faithfulness. It's so easy to be distracted by the things of the world, by difficulties or challenges, or even when terrible things happen, Which, you know, maybe they deserve our attention. But if it causes us to take our eyes off you and it causes us to forget your faithfulness, well, then that's the problem. So, Father, focus our eyes, our hearts, and our minds on your great faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Door closed. So uh, a couple weeks ago, we began to look at Gideon. And Gideon was called by God in chapter six, while he was hiding from the Midianites. He was actually threshing. how I, I got to look this one He was actually threshing out grain in a wine press because the Midianites were stealing their food, stealing their livestock, generally making their lives miserable. When God called Gideon, he said, Gideon, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's response was, who, me? Um, Because God loves to call us by who we can be and who we are becoming in him, not just by who we think we are. So Gideon made a sacrifice to God. Gideon pulled down the altar of Baal. His father defended him. He called Israel to battle And then he put out his fleece to be sure he had heard from God. And twice he did that. Both times God answered. And so Gideon was like, well, I guess I better do this thing. And so we get to chapter 7. Then then (laughs) Jerubbaal, also known as Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them, by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me, to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of all the people, saying, Whoever is afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And twenty-two thousand of the people returned, And 10,000 remain. So when Gideon called them out to war, 32,000 people answered. And God's like, nah, that's too many. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Now, if you were Gideon, don't you think you'd be a little panicked if two-thirds of your military went home? What do you mean? We still have too many. So bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And Gideon's like, yeah, you don't have to do that. We're good. At least that would have been me. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink, And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his own place. So from where they were camping, or where they set up their camp, they could see the vast amount of military force against them we're going to see a little later tonight that, that there was well over 100,000 soldiers that had gathered when, it, when Gideon called out the men to war. And the Lord says, well, you got 32,000 versus 100 plus thousand. That's just not a fair fight. Tell everyone who's afraid to go home. 22,000 people leave. All right, so now we got 10,000 against 100,000 plus lord's like that's still not a fair fight take him down to the water whoever so they would, the people who would cup their hands bring the water up and which i've never done but um but the people who did that got to stay the people who stuck their face in the river or whatever they were sent home and another nine thousand seven hundred of them went home leaving three hundred We were talking about that before you arrived, Spartans. So we have to ask why. Well, first off, because God wants the glory. That's the reason He gives. You got too many men with you, thirty-two thousand against a hundred thousand. You know, you guys are going to win because I've already said that. And they, with that many people, they might think, "Aha, look at how good we are." Ten thousand against a hundred thousand. That's only one killing ten. That's doable. You still have too many. So he drops it down to 300. Now, I didn't actually do the math on that, but 100,000 plus with only 300 guys would leave thousands each. (laughs) Now, they could not take credit. God wants the glory when he works in our lives, and we should always give it to him. So once he's down to 300 men, God promises to deliver the enemy host into their hands. This teaches us that sometimes God will thin the ranks, and he does so for a reason. Sometimes we may feel like things are getting too bad. Maybe the numbers are too low, or the finances are too low, or whatever just is too much. Lord, this is too much. But why? Well, perhaps he does this to bring us to a place where we realize there is nothing that we can do to fix it or get out of it, then when God delivers us, not if, when God delivers us, he is the only one who can get the glory. So we cannot take any glory for ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, Paul writes, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So I was at a pastor's conference once, and, and the speaker was, was speaking on this passage, and he looked at a room full of about 1,500 pastors after reading that, right? Not many noble will call, but God chose the foolish. God chose the weak. God chose the base. God chose the despised. And he looked at this group of pastors and said, Gentlemen, when you were called, you were not complimented. Thanks. (laughs) Real encouraging. Why? does God choose the foolish things of the world so that no flesh should glory in his presence but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written he who glories let him glory in the Lord we we, we don't Glorify ourselves before God. We don't exalt ourselves before God. Jesus told us that if you exalt yourself, that whoever humbles himself will be exalted, but whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Something especially stupid, if I can say, can I say that about taking God's glory for yourself? It, it's just such a bad idea. Billy Graham had three rules of ministry, which I've brought up in the past. And the three rules are never touch the women, never touch the money, never touch God's glory. And I've lived by those three rules of ministry most of the time. I've never touched the money. (laughs) I've never touched the women. There have been a few times where I got a little like Nebuchadnezzar. Look what I did. And oh, my word. was The Lord learned me quick. And then you'd think he would only have to learn me once. So we're going to move on. Verse 9. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, Go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped, He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. So in verse 9, God tells Gideon, Go down and attack them. And then in verse 10, he says, However, if you're afraid, take your servant and go down and eavesdrop, and your hands will be strengthened. So when he does, he goes down and these two guys are talking. And one guy says, I had a dream about a barley loaf that knocked over one of our tents. And the other guy says, Gideon's going to kill us all. I mean, that's, the, that's the, you know, the paraphrase. This boggles my mind. This man of Midian has more faith in God's ability to deliver Midian to Israel by Gideon's hand than Gideon did. I mean, you just got to think about that. Gideon's setting out fleeces. Gideon's asking for signs. Gideon's hemming and hawing and making excuses. And you got this Midianite guy, Gideon, he's going to wipe us all out. That's what your dream means. Now, I am not an interpreter of dreams. A, a barley loaf knocking over a tent doesn't seem to speak to me that God was going to wipe out the Midianites. But this guy, and the only way he could have interpreted that dream as such was by the Holy Spirit. He's got more faith in what God's going to do through Gideon than Gideon did. However, Gideon was encouraged. He worshipped the Lord. He went back up and told everybody, all right, it's time. Get up. We're going to go take care of the Midianites. And so what I think, at least one way we can apply this, is when we look at our enemy or we look at our problems, they seem to grow because that's what we're focusing on. When we look at God, our problems seem smaller. Unless, of course, we're on the wrong side of that and we see God and he's going to wipe us all out. But I'm pretty sure we're all on the right side, at least I hope we are. Uh, And it's easy to do. You believe in Jesus Christ, you're on the right side. So let's keep our focus on him. Ready? I came up with this statement in my office. I want to give God the glory for it, but I thought it was profound. It really isn't. But I thought it was profound, so now you have to listen to it. Don't use the mind's microscope to focus on your problems. Use the mind's telescope to focus on God's power. So cheesy. My daughter's shaking her head. So cheesy. I know, I know. I don't care. It makes the point. Verse 15. All right, we already did verse 15. Verse 16. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand. And I I appreciate that Gideon's walking around with 300 trumpets um, with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpet on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of the Lord, and Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, The sword of the Lord, and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord said, every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Bethacacia toward Zerora, as far as the border of Abel-Mahola and by Tebeth. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and seize from them the watering places as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. They captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the Rock of Oreb. That was convenient, that the rock was already named Oreb. Now, I'm pretty sure the name came after. And Zeb they killed at the wine press of Zeb. You know, every time I spend time in the Old Testament, I really feel like I failed in naming my children they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So Gideon's plan is is pretty amazing. I imagine this plan was given to him by God, inspired by God. So he splits the 300 men up into three companies of 100. Now remember, uh, the Midianites, where Gideon was camped, he was looking down on the Midianites. So they were in some sort of valley. And he breaks them up and he says, this is what we're going to do. You're going to put the torches in the pottery. You're going to blow the trumpet. You're going to break the pottery. Well, with the breaking the pottery with the torches inside probably would have caused sparks to fly up. Um, blowing the trumpets into this valley probably would have caused a huge echo, meaning Midian had no idea how many men were against them or what was going on. He does all of this during the start of the middle watch, which was between 12 a.m. and 3 a.m., roughly, right? They didn't have clocks. But give or take, somewhere around midnight is when this happened. So most of them were asleep. And then God sends confusion among the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the people of the east, and they start to kill each other in the dark and in the confusion that occurred, which God had brought upon them. You see, now there's no way these 300 men could go, look what we did, right? They blew the trumpets broke the pots, and watched the Midianites, Amalekites, and the the people from the east kill each other. right? Once they figured out what was going on, that they were dying, they didn't know that there wasn't an enemy force upon them, they ran. So Gideon pursues them. He calls other tribes of Israel out to battle to finish them off. He specifically calls Ephraim to cut off their escape route over the Jordan River. He kills Oreb and Zeb. Just great names. We're going to get a couple others a little, or a little later on in chapter 8. Um, and the victory is underway. So we get to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, verse 1, Now the men of Ephraim said to him, that's Gideon, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. So Ephraim complains that Gideon doesn't call them out to war, right? Well, he was doing what God said by whittling the army down to 300. Um, And after the initial victory, Ephraim's complaining, and Gideon gets pretty savvy in in his politics here when he says the gleaning of Ephraim uh, is better than the vintage of Abiezer, the gleaning of Ephraim is them finishing off the fleeing Midianites including the princes Oreb and Zeb where the vintage of Abiezer would have been the initial battle where Gideon really didn't have to do much God was doing it all so he goes yeah what you guys did was so much better than anything I could have ever done and Ephraim was like well he's got a point Let's not be angry. Uh, However, and by the way, the vintage of Abiezer Gideon was uh, a descendant of Abiezar. But Gideon shows great character, diplomacy, and leadership here. When we get to chapter 12, Ephraim does this again to the judge Jephthah. And Jephthah kills a bunch of them. He's not as nice as Gideon. Gideon's being diplomatic. Jephthah basically hauls off into civil war and wipes out a bunch of the Ephraimites for their whininess. So what do we take away from this? When we get to chapter 12, don't whine. All right, we'll get there. Verse 4. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, so notice not one of them was lost, exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Succoth, "Please give loaves of bread to the people who followed me, for they are exhausted and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. oreb Zeb, Zeba, Zalmunna." Telling you, anybody listening to this, great children's names. Kings of Midian, the leaders of Succoth said, verse 6, "Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army?" So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, yeah, his faith has showed up now, uh, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. So he spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. There's 15,000 left. 120,000 had fallen. 300 against 135,000. That's how God gets the glory right there. Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents in, of the, on the east of Noba and Jog-Baha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. So they ran away. They were surely tired, right? But even here, the 300 are now going up against 15,000 after being exhausted, after chasing them. And Gideon, the son of... Oh, sorry, I skipped. When Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Ares, and he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him, and he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city, and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. So in any way, uh, Gideon went out and got a switch made of, of thorns and briars, and he beat them with it. He could have killed them. And he took the elders, of, oh, I already read that. Verse 17, then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So there he was a little less generous. Um, so Gideon is military. They're exhausted. They ask for bread from Succoth and Penuel. They both refuse because the victory was not complete. Now, maybe they were concerned that if he pursued Zeba and Zalmunna and failed to kill them, and then Zeba and Zalmunna, I just like saying their names, um, found out that the men of Succoth and Penuel helped them, then they would go take some vengeance. So maybe they had a, a semi-just reason. Um, but whatever the case was, uh, Gideon did capture them. He comes back to Succoth and beats the uh, elders of the city with briars. Then he comes to Penuel and he tears down their tower and then kills all the men. There's a principle that we've brought up time and time again throughout scripture. And this is the principle of sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 tells us, uh, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he reaps. If he sows to the flesh, he'll reap corruption. If he sows to the Spirit, he'll reap everlasting life. And we like to think, right, that our actions don't have consequences, but they always will. Our sin will always have consequences. Doesn't mean we'll, we'll you know, lose our salvation or something like that, but it always has consequences. Verse eighteen. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are. So were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. I kind of think they were trying to butter him up a little bit. Then he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you would let them live, I would not kill you. But he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and Rosen killed them. <laughs> he killed Zeba and Zalmunna, took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels necks. Um, so the reality is, is, is he was willing to have mercy on them, but they had murdered his brothers. And so he goes, nope, you're going to die. So he looks at his son and he says, um, kill him, but he wouldn't do it. Now, here's the interesting thing. He was afraid, but the word youth here means somewhere between infancy and adolescence in the Hebrew. right? So he certainly wasn't an infant, so he was probably an adolescent. Now, In today's terms, adolescence is considered between the ages of 10 and 19. So if he was 19, he probably should have stepped up and killed those guys at his father's command. But what if he was 12 or 13 or something like that? Then I got no problem with him being afraid to lop the guy's heads off. So Zeba and Zalmunna, I don't know what the thinking was here. Well, they taunt Gideon and said, well, if you can't do it, when, when they say, um, rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. Basically, he's saying, well, if you're a coward, that's why your kid's a coward. That's what that statement means. And Gideon goes, fine, He chops their heads off. Um, and then he takes the crescent ornaments from their camels Uh, probably as a trophy and or as plunder or as proof that he had conquered these kings. Uh, So we get to the end here, uh, well, verse 22 to 28, Gideon's going to do really good, then he's going to do really bad. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. Jehovah shall rule over you. Remember, God wanted Israel to be a theocracy. He wanted it where he was the one who ruled Israel. And this is the first time, not the last, but the first time they try to set up a human king. And Gideon says, "Uh uh-uh, God's going to rule over you. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you, that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, We will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, purple robes, that they wore, uh, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon into his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So the first thing he does is really good. When they tell Gideon, we want you and your son and your grandson to rule over us, he says, no, God will rule over. Then he says, hey, give me a bunch of gold, Uh, roughly 50 pounds of gold. And it said he made an ephod. Now, we sometimes see the word ephod uh, related to like a robe, but the word ephod can also mean an image. So he took this gold and he made it into some sort of idol. It's not described for us what kind of idol it was, but it's some sort of idol that he wanted to use to inquire of God's will. Well, the problem is when you set up a gold idol, well, people start to worship it. And it says Israel played the harlot with it. And it was a snare to Gideon and to his whole household. So after Gideon did really well, then not so much. Midian was subdued and Israel had rest for 40 years. Now, 29 through 35 uh, is kind of interesting because it really sets up what's going to happen in chapter 9. So, then Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, that's Gideon, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were of his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name was called Ab- he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age, and he was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Abir's Say that three times fast. So it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel obeyed God greatly for the rest of their lives. That doesn't say that. As soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal-Bareth their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Gideon in accordance with all the good he had done for Israel. So the cycle continues, of course. We read about Gideon's 70 sons. This will be important moving forward. Uh, But Gideon had many wives. Uh, Polygamy was culturally acceptable, but there was no place in the law that had been delivered to Israel that allowed polygamous relationships. Um, So they were leaning a little more towards the culture than following the law. So even though Gideon had done some great things, he wasn't perfect. He had many wives. He had 70 sons. This is really the first time we see uh, polygamy mentioned uh, from a prominent figure in the Bible. Um, Abraham, well, that's not entirely true. Let me go back a little bit. Because Jacob did have four wives. He didn't have enough wives to have 70 sons. And that was before the giving of the law. So Abraham had Sarah. Then he had a wife by the name of, of, oh, I can't remember her name. I want to say it's a holobah, but I might be wrong about that. And then he had several concubines, but still not polygamous and before the giving of the law. So this is the first time we see polygamy after the giving of the law. Um, it doesn't work out well for the Israelites. It, it becomes problematic as time goes on. Uh, he also had one concubine because having enough wives to bear you 70 sons isn't enough. So you have to have a concubine. Um, and she bore him a son named Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech's going to be a problem next week. <laughs> We're going to see that. Gideon dies. As soon as he's dead, the Israelites went right back to evil. Worshiping baal Bereth, which means Baal of the Covenant, Uh, doesn't really explain to us what covenant that's referring to. They didn't remember God who had delivered them. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Gideon, who had done good for Israel. And next week, in chapter 9, guess what's going to happen? Well, first, Abimelech's going to do something really awful. But then the people are going to go back into, or they're already back into this idolatry. They're going to be oppressed. They're going to cry out to God and God's going to raise up a deliverer. Have you, uh, right? We talked about the pattern. It's just going to keep on happening. And so we should learn from it. Uh, We're also not only going to get into uh, Abimelech and his treachery, and hopefully Jephthah, but also a couple of the other judges, if we actually manage to take three chapters next week. I am not hopeful. Not that we won't be here and that we won't study the Bible, just that we'll get through three chapters. It is, uh, you know, if history tells us anything, um, it's not likely. Uh, So until next week, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for how much you love us. We thank you for teaching us your faithfulness and your goodness and your grace. Thank you that you show us that while the glory is not for us, it's for you. Thank you for showing us, Lord, that we can have faith that you will deliver us. Help us, Father, not to focus on our problems, but to focus on you. May you be glorified in all we do for the rest of our week. Lord, just watch over us, bless us, keep us in you. All for your glory. In Jesus' name.